Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode of this podcast where we try to use stories from the headlines to facilitate conversation around healthcare and nursing issues. This week's Bad Nurse story involves a nurse who actually happened to be married to a doctor. That happens quite often. But before we get into that, I want to welcome my guest this week, my guest host. Uh, we have nurse burnout coach Jana to talk a little true crime and a little nursing and healthcare. And then we're going to talk about Jana's role as a nurse burnout coach. Welcome, Jana. Thank you. So glad to be here. It's good to have you. Um, once we get through the, the bad nurse story, we're going to feature you as a good nurse. We're going to talk about what all you do as a burnout coach. It's definitely yep, needed in this absolutely. day and time as healthcare has gotten such a difficult place to work, unfortunately, but it's all right. We're going to talk about it, right? Talk about it all, the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Wonderful. Awesome. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. So to get started, I guess, with this bad nurse story, this is the story of Mary Beth Davis. She was a registered nurse in West Virginia. Mary Beth was born in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, which was a former coal mining community about 50 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. She was raised by her stepfather, who was a physician, and her mother, who was a librarian. Mary Beth had a really interesting and fun childhood. She took piano lessons. She volunteered at a hospital as a candy striper. That always sounds like so much fun. Like when I was younger, I thought that would be fun. Now now after working in a hospital, not so much. I don't know. Maybe they would enjoy it, but mm -mm. but when she was doing that volunteering, it kind of sparked her desire to become a nurse. So that's interesting. She must have seen something she liked, right? So she met Gary Davis while she was in high school and they, you know, were, she was enamored. They 
started dating and shared the same last name and were often seated together in school. That's kind yeah, of funny. Yeah, that's really interesting. Never thought about how that yeah. would happen. Yeah. So they were married in 1977 and moved to Lewisburg so that Gary could attend West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine. So I, I feel I always feel like I need to say this whenever we talk about DOs or Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. It's not everyone knows or even understands what that role is, but it is the same thing as a as a medical doctor. It is there's literally no difference. They have they are surgeons, they they have the ability to do anything a medical doctor does. It's just a different approach, like more um, natural kind of almost a, approach. Yeah. More holistic. holistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I would say it's more holistic. It definitely takes a lot into consideration as far as they take a lot more psychological issues into account yeah. than maybe traditional yeah. medical more doctor. Like functional, but, how, yeah. how your body interacts like with itself yeah. kind of thing. It's interesting, but it's not like all alternative. They prescribe medications just like MDs. They perform procedures just like MDs. It's the same thing, but there's just a little bit different take on it. But they they don't have any. One is not better than the other. And I always feel like I need to say that because I just, I know that I didn't understand it. Really, yeah, I didn't yeah. understand it before I went to nursing school. So I always wanted to kind of defend those doctors. I've worked with a lot of them at the hospital and... I was, I always liked their approach. So I appreciate them. Yeah, me too. So about a year after they were married, the couple welcomed their first child, Tegan. And then a second child, Seth, followed two and a half years later. The new baby was often feverish, lethargic, and jaundiced, and most troubling to Mary Beth, unable to feed properly. So on September the 30th, 1981, the Davises rushed Seth to Greenbrier Valley Hospital after he appeared to have a seizure. Seth's physician, Dr. Joseph Aldrich, suspected that the 10-week-old boy had an underlying metabolic disorder. So after closely monitoring the child for approximately three to four days, the doctor recommended that Seth be transferred via air to a larger hospital. In this case, it was Pittsburgh Children's Hospital, where he could receive more specialized care. So when he got to the hospital, they did all sorts of tests on him, and they found that he had abnormally dangerous levels of insulin in his body of like 322 is what they said. So the treating physician surmised that someone had injected Seth with insulin and suggested to Seth's primary doctor that child abuse may be involved. Jana, I could see this being an issue with a lot of primary care pediatricians not wanting to, maybe not even considering it because they get to know their these parents and these children. It's I know with my children, it's, that's the way it was. You feel like they're just part of your an extension almost an extension of your family they you know you take them there you've seen them for years so i think maybe they might have some blinders on in certain Absolutely. cases if they really you know yeah and i mean literally our brains are trained to see what we want to see so if you're not used to seeing those kinds of horrible situations your brain is going to automatically assume that you know there's something innocent that's at play and I mean, a lot of, especially as healthcare providers, we do see, and they would see tons of sick kids. So they're just going to assume that, you know, another illness is causing this, not necessarily that there's some foul play 
because how rare is there actually something that was like done to them versus some medical thing that maybe we didn't even realize. Right. Well, this doctor did uh, suggest to uh, Seth's primary care doctor that they report it, that he report it to authorities, but that physician did not file a report and allegedly dismissed the idea of the insulin coming from an outside source. So as a result of the large quantity of insulin in Seth's body, he sustained extensive brain damage. And we know as nurses that the, probably what happened is the, the his blood sugar being dangerously low is probably what did that. Medical officials at the at Children's Hospital advised the Davises that he would likely have to be placed in an institution for specialized care. That is so sad. His primary care doctor felt that appropriate care could have been given at home and noted on his medical records that the primary diagnosis of Seth's condition was hypoglycemia, low glucose, which can lead to seizures. The doctor did, however, recommend that Seth be taken to the University of Virginia Medical Center for further testing. And doctors there speculated that Seth's syndrome were suggestive of Lee's disease, which is a rare hereditary disorder that causes the central nervous system to break down. So that's interesting because a completely different set of doctors, different set of experts, still a large institution doing lots of tests. And they, they didn't come to the conclusion of intentional administering insulin. Yeah, but also it's after the fact and they weren't there when the blood sugar was, you know, <laughs> in the boots. So what, like, this is then later looking back at it and they're trying to figure out what's going on. So I think insulin is one of those things that it's like, okay, you give a bunch now and they survive, but it wears off. It's not, their insulin levels aren't going to stay high. Their blood sugars aren't going to stay low extended time. Yeah. So they didn't have that, even if they knew it from the history, which they may or may not have, um, even if they did have that information from the history, it still is not right there in front of them. And so they're dealing with the symptoms and the information that they have right there in front of them. Well, less than a year later, Tegan, the Davis's three-year-old daughter, fell ill. She complained of flu-like symptoms and a burning sensation when she urinated. When the typical home remedies for the flu didn't work, Mary Beth rushed her to the emergency room. Her husband, Gary, was on a rotation five hours away in Harrisburg. Tegan's condition deteriorated while in the hospital. She had a fever of 108 and began vomiting and convulsing. Yeah. And it's not at all unusual. I always like to take opportunities just to kind of educate about things like this. It's not at all unusual for children to have really high temperatures uh, when they get a fever. And, and seizures with fevers. And seizures with fevers. And it's not so much that you're, I think people are like, oh, it's going to fry your brain. I mean, if it got too high, you know, clearly, but what you really worry about with the fever is not so much the fever as what is causing the fever. That's what you're really worried. What in the world is wrong with this child that would cause them to have such a high fever? And if, if, if you're talking about a, a temperature that high in an adult, you definitely want to be concerned about what is going on. And not so much. I mean, yes, giving giving something to help bring the, the fever down, doing interventions to help that, you know, to help cool the patient, you definitely want to do that. But you're more concerned with what in the world is wrong with this person that is causing them to spike this fever like this. So she later fell into a coma and her primary care physician, Dr. Aldrich, suspected either, again, Lee's disease or Rice syndrome or Ray's syndrome. I never knew how to pronounce that. 
That was kind of a big thing several decades ago, I think, because parents would give their children aspirin whenever, if they were sick with a cold or if they, really anything, it seems like, here's a little baby aspirin. If a child has cold or flu-like symptoms, there's something about the aspirin that reacts in their body that can cause this rare condition called Ray's syndrome. And so that's what Dr. Aldrich was suspecting, possibly. Mary Beth reportedly felt helpless and asked Dr. Aldrich permission to administer an injection of thiamine, a B1 vitamin, that was a common treatment for Lee's at the time, which was, of course, that that was what they suspected in Seth at one point. So according to Mary Beth, the doctor said that this was fine to give Tegan this thiamine injection. So... She did this while Tegan was in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So a nurse on duty saw her inject the thiamine and asked her what it was. She told her that she told her what she had injected. And she said that the doctor had given her permission to administer 100 milligrams of thiamine and told the nurse to chart it. So another teaching moment. so cringe. If someone else does something. (laughs) Yeah. Someone else administers a medicine or does something with a patient. You don't chart it as though, you know, you were the one that, that gave it because you have no idea what that per- whether the person actually gave it and what was actually in the syringe. And was there even a an order, which there yes. wasn't an order for Yeah, it. and it's interesting yeah. that like, okay, she asks if we can, you, she could do that. But like normal process would be like, yes, absolutely. Doctor puts the order in, they get it for pharmacy, and then the nurse who's actually caring for that patient would give that med. It just, there's so many like things that were wrong with that situation. It's just amazing to me. Right. And so there are very rare cases where a patient or a family member will administer um, medications in the hospital. I can think of a couple. And one case would be a patient's getting ready to go home and they're going to be going home with a particular type of medicine or their family is going to be responsible for, say, giving them a Lovenox shot or in- administering insulin or you know something like that. Well, you want to make sure that they know how to do that. So you may educate them on it, show them how to do it, and then let them do it in front of you so that you can watch them and make sure that they're doing it accurately. You would never just like you should never just leave it in the room and just, you know, let them give it whenever that is not that should never and, be and that med came from pharmacy still, even if they're self-injecting it. Or if it's like something special that's not in a hospital formulary, you'll generally still get the med from the patient or their family, and then the the pharmacist will still take that med, review it, make sure it is what they say it is, and then you'll bring it back and then actually give it to them. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Everything that's done in a hospital should be done in that systematic way. There should no patient should be taking a medication that has not from from home that has not gone through the process of going to pharmacy, a pharmacist looking at it. They have ways of determining what substance is in, you know, a pill or or whatever and then once they've done that, they will put a label on it and they will give it back to you and they will say it is okay for you to administer this to the patient. So yeah, there's there's a way, a proper way of doing these things. It's pretty rare to do th- even those things. For one thing, if you were doing this with every patient, it would be impossible because, you know, how it is in hospitals, <laughs> we're kind of busy. But don't mind doing it if it's necessary. I mean, sometimes it just is and 
this, you know, it's a way that we can accommodate a patient that, as you said, has some sort of non-formulary medication. A lot of times chemotherapy drugs, very expensive drugs that the hospital just does not carry. So that's one way to get around that problem. So after this injection, after the nurse, you know, witnessed this injection and Mary Beth, you know, said it was this thiamine, Tegan's condition actually didn't improve. It took a turn for the worse and she died during a transport to a larger hospital. An autopsy was performed and Dr. Ann Hooper, who performed the autopsy, was concerned to find hundreds of bead-like formations in Tegan's digestive tract which she believed to be the remnants of time-released pills. Mm. A toxicology, I know, a toxicology report showed an alarmingly high level of caffeine. It's interesting, isn't it? Three-year-old. Like, yeah, caffeine? Why? Yeah, where would that come from? So the examiner ruled the death as a homicide, of course, and an investigation was launched. The Davis family was concerned that Tegan had accidentally ingested something she wasn't supposed to, and her father located empty packs of Dexatrim diet pills in an outside garbage can. I don't know if these still exist, but I know they were around a couple of decades ago. And that's kind of the, that was your the, the big secret ingredient in these pills was caffeine. You know, it was essentially like, take all this caffeine, it'll increase your heart rate and supposedly, you know, increase your metabolism and you'll lose weight. I don't think they worked, but whatever. <laughs> Maybe they worked for some people. Maybe they had a placebo effect. But one thing you definitely don't want to do is take, you can take too much caffeine and certainly a child. Absolutely. So the pills belong to Mary Beth. She reportedly was about 90 pounds heavier than before her pregnancy and was using them to help her lose weight. The investigation into Tegan's death went nowhere and the county prosecutor who died in 1986 did not pursue an indictment. I'm really shocked at that. There's so many many, like loopholes in this story of like, how did it get missed? Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to, for that whole situation, like, I don't know if you know many three-year-olds or have tried to give three-year-olds medication, but it's generally very complicated to try to convince a three-year-old to take pills and to take that many. And if it was like, oh, that kid accidentally got into something and had too much caffeine, you're like, oh, they accidentally drank coffee, which a three-year-old is going to think is bitter and gross, like, or an energy drink or something. But there's no way I feel like you could have that high level accidentally. And then if the wrappers for those pills were in the outside trash can, the three-year-old's not going to put them in the outside trash can. Right. Yeah. And it seems odd that she was able to get, or someone was able to get the child to swallow these pills. Because I looked it up and they're they're capsules and they have like, you know, the capsules that have like the little beads Mm -hmm. inside of them. I was going to say, were they really colorful? Like something that would be like attractive to kids, but... Even how would you get them to take that many? How do you get a three-year-old to take to swallow pills in general? And so one thing that just occurred to me, if when they say there were remnants of, of material that uh, was from a time-released uh, medication, maybe the beads that are inside the capsule are time-released. And whenever, you know, they are supposed to sit there and slowly release the medication. So maybe they found those little beads that are, you know, that are in the capsules, and she opened those up and put them Pudding in or something, maybe food, food yeah, or something. Maybe. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters. And it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. 
Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low-dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products, and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength, and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. A few months after Tegan died, Gary and Mary Beth placed their handicapped son at the McGuire Memorial's children's home in New Brighton, Pennsylvania. They moved to Toledo, Ohio, where Gary had gotten a job. Mary Beth had suffered three miscarriages, so they decided to adopt a baby girl whom they named Katie Beth in 1984. So one thing that Gary said is, if I had believed for one minute that my wife had done anything wrong, I would have never permitted us to do that. So he says everything that had happened up to this point, he was apparently oblivious. Even though there was accusa- there were accusations mm-hmm. made, he it he never entertained the idea yeah, that it could be he didn't true. Want to see it. So the social workers in charge of the screening process asked about Tegan and Seth, but they didn't raise any objections to the ab- adoptions. So, I mean, it really is. You have one child that dies under suspicious circumstances. You have another child that, under relatively suspicious circumstances, became so ill that they're now that they now have the, all of these deficits so much so that they are having to live in a, a home and you, you don't even investigate it further. You know, I, that's, that does mm-hmm. seem odd to me. Especially, I mean, today, the, the process to adopt kids is so intense. So I don't know if it was just not like to the same caliber that it is. Well, it obviously isn't, but you'd still think that with those questionable circumstances, you would at least warrant further investigation. Yeah, you would think. So Gary and Mary Beth began to grow apart, unfortunately, and Seth and Tegan were no no longer there, you know, to kind of help help keep them together. Mary Beth missed her family, but Gary needed a change of scenery. A year after they adopted Katie Beth, Mary Beth became pregnant. She gave birth to another boy, Gary Richard, but even his arrival wasn't enough to save their marriage. They separated that same year. So Mary Beth took the children back to West Virginia, and then Gary made would make frequent visits there. And neither child had any reported mysterious illnesses. So in 1995, West Virginia enacted a law that required each county prosecutor's office to form a multidisciplinary task force on child abuse. So we've had way too many stories of children suffering child abuse and their people. There's evidence of it. And then it seems like nothing is done. So at least it sounds like they were trying to do something about this. So at a meeting of the Greenbrier County Task Force in April of 1995, State Trooper Michael Spradlin recalled someone had made the offhanded remark, had a task force been been in place 13 years ago, 
perhaps the Davis case would have been solved. So just sort of offhandedly sitting there, I guess, talking about different cases or discussing this new task force and and what all they're going to try to do. And then someone, this triggered a a memory. Does that surprise you that a police officer would would like remember a case from 10 years ago? To be honest, probably not. Because as a nurse, like I feel like there was, you know, those patients that went like totally south on you and you didn't expect it and it was kind of like a traumatic death or something that happened to you in your nursing practice. Those are the memories that stick with you. And can you imagine being that police officer that's like dealing with literally a three-year-old who dies under such like really weird situ like I feel like all of like the hairs on the back of my neck would be standing up being like there's something wrong in this situation and so like I feel like that's the kind of thing that sticks with you especially with a child so I can I can see that being something that's like always in the back of their mind being like okay in the future like I want to be able to do my best to prevent a situation like that happening so that I mean it probably was literally haunting that police officer so I can see that. Yeah. Now that you say that, it makes perfect sense because I I guess it's not every day that they come across a situation where you know a difficult you know death of a child, the so mysterious, not solved. So I guess yeah. that would stand out. And in you their said mind. it was so a maybe smaller it's not so town unusual. too, right? So I mean, yeah. think imagine right. a small town cop. It's mostly like police, like you know, like traffic mm-hmm. tickets, like. To actually have a murder is a big deal, but then, like, literally a murder of a three-year-old is, that's, like, career, like, changing. And the child of a doctor, a child of a a nurse. So, yeah, I, I guess I could see how that would stick out in their mind. So Mary Beth had sort of a reserved disposition and was allegedly was not received very well by the people in the town. You couple that with there was also a rumor that was going around that she was having an affair with Dr. Aldrich, the primary care pediatrician. And so apparently rumor was that she was not a fan favorite of the people there in the town. So the claims of the affair were reportedly denied by both Mary Beth and Dr. Aldrich. Of course. But (laughs) people don't care if it's true or not. All they care is that, you know, there's rumor of it and they're going to just, unfortunately... That's what happens. People just latch on to things and it's hard to shake it off, you know. And I also think that it makes sense. Someone has a, you know, sort of quiet disposition, aren't real expressive, don't show a lot of emotion. And I think it's kind of easy to make assumptions about those people because they just, they don't, they don't reveal a lot about their personality. So this Spradlin was initially dismissive of of the town's gossip about Mary Beth, but he began to take the accusation seriously when he spoke with witnesses and investigated the case further. He was deeply disturbed by the accusation of suspected child abuse from Seth's physician at Children's Hospital and their determination that he was intentionally injected with insulin. So he goes back, you know, and looks at this as you and I are, are kind of looking at this and going, how did something not happen? Mm -hmm. I I would imagine that was sort of happening with him. He was going, so all of this, all of these things took place and we didn't move forward with this investigation. Nothing ever happened. There came to it. 
So Seth remained in a near vegetative state until his death in 2002, unfortunately. Spradlin amassed enough information to present a detailed case to a grand jury, which returned an indictment against Davis in November of 1996. So during her trial, the lead investigator called Mary Beth a, quote, very, very evil mother and surmised that she had Munchausen's syndrome by proxy. So according to the diagnosis, a Munchausen's Munchausen's mother has one or more children with persistent and puzzling medical problems about which she is either overly dramatic or overly calm. She's likely to be familiar with medicine and will often have an absent husband who has left her hungry for attention. Burnett characterized MSBP as a trigger for child abuse, which of course, that is exactly what it is. We recently did a story about Maya, the, the child in Florida, whose parents took her to the emergency room at Johns Hopkins All Children's uh, Hospital. And due to her being on all these different kinds of like pain medications and benzos, due to a very rare disorder that she had that they were not familiar with, they accused her mother of a medical child abuse. Her mother was a nurse. So we recently did this story and that ended horribly. And so I wanted to do this story because these things do happen. And I want to, you know, just sort of help people understand why a healthcare professional would suspect this because it happens. Unfortunately, it does happen. Now, that doesn't mean that we should jump to conclusions and accuse everyone. It's look at the evidence, listen to what they're telling you, listen to what other professionals tell you, don't jump to conclusions, and certainly don't make assumptions and accusations based on your personal feelings toward the person. Because just because you don't like the parents, just because they're being maybe a little pushy, or maybe even rude, that you, it just leads you down and the, on the road. same. They could be overly friendly and like very charismatic and you could be like, oh, they're such nice, wonderful people. They would never do something like that. But you really have no, you don't know anybody. <laughs> just assume you don't know anybody and keep an open mind and just like always be using your critical thinking, no matter how straightforward a situation might be. I feel like this applies to any patients that you have. Just because it seems straightforward doesn't necessarily mean it is. Yeah, exactly. Always keeping an open mind is so important in healthcare. It's not easy to do, but it is so important to remain unbiased and keep an open mind. So Dr. Basil Zatelli, one of Seth's pediatricians at Children's Hospital and an expert on Munchausen syndrome by proxy, testified that Davis's behavior was a tip was typical of someone suffering from the syndrome. They said the mother was an intensive care nurse and would frequently go into emotion, an emotional crisis when the father, who was an osteopathic student at the time, was away during hospital rotations. The mother was polite but guarded, never spontaneous, and maintained a bland affect despite her child's critical illness. So all that played a played kind of a role in it. It's so, I always feel like it's unfortunate to judge people based on their personality. Um, yeah. It's... Kind of bothers yeah. me, and it's but at the same time, as a, like as a mother, if you were given a like life threatening diagnosis for your child, you would expect there to be like at least some level of shock, 
Like, they may not be, like, fully breaking down and emotional. Most, I mean, a lot of people are. But, like, you'd expect them to be in this state of shock from receiving that information. So can you imagine, like, telling a family member about this and them just kind of being, like, almost like they knew it already. Like, it's just, like, blank. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a surprise because they know what's wrong. They know exactly what's happened. Yeah, that does make sense. Well, prosecutors argued that Mary Beth Davis injected her son with insulin and six months later killed her daughter with the time-released diet pills containing caffeine. A jury convicted her in 1997 of giving her infant son, Seth, an insulin overdose in September of 1981 and using caffeine-laced diet pills to kill her three-year-old daughter, Tegan, six months later. She was sentenced to two concurrent sentences of three to 18 years, After her conviction, she maintained that she was wrongfully convicted and submitted an appeal in 1999, but her conviction was upheld. So that is the story of Mary Beth Davis. And I, if, I mean, in a case like this, and and I say this a lot, but if you are truly innocent by some, you know, weird stroke of horrible luck, your children maybe had some kind of very rare disease and that, that was hereditary. Both of them had it and it caused Seth to have the problems that he had and then it caused Tegan's death. How awful that would be to, you know, suffer the, the, the death of your children and then to be accused of this and then convicted of it and have the whole world against you that would be terrible but there's it's hard to it's hard to argue against the the evidence they found these these the you know the remnants of the medication in tegan's stomach so how do you yeah how do you argue against that and i mean with seth's situation having that high level of insulin and the, the blood sugars be so low and i would think that like since he was in full care they would be able to watch and there was no mention that like this was a recurrent problem. He continued because I mean, if that if he actually had a syndrome that caused the hypoglycemia, you would think there would be repeat events, but there was never repeat events. Once once the there was that separation. Yeah. And that's another thing that's noticed that they look for when they do separate the child from the parent. Does the child do the child's symptoms go away? So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing 
Um, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Well, I guess that does it for this week's bad nurse story. So we can get into our good nurse segment and talk about, Jenna, your nurse burnout company and what, what all, how did you even, first of all, how long have you been a nurse and just tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah. So I've been a nurse for a little over five years. I was kind of the, like, I had medical professionals in my family. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to help people. So all through high school, I worked in like my aunt's doctor's office and kind of like was surrounded by that. So nursing seemed like the logical step to help people and kind of get science, which I really enjoyed. So I went into nursing, I finished and I still was like, I don't know. I did all these different rotations and tried out all these things. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I want critical care, but it wasn't really clear. So I ended up going into float pool. So I did float all like through different hospitals in like a large hospital system. So I did everything under the sun and I did kind of realize that critical care was more my my passion. So I switched into the critical care float. And all through that process, and I think float pool has something to do with that because you're constantly going to new new units with like different people getting generally the worst assignments because the nurses on the floor are, you know, kind of burnt out of dealing with those you know, complicated qu- patients, quote unquote, I want to say. Um, so I've kind of very quickly within the first one to two years was like, just feeling very drained. Like, I don't know what if this is what I want, like feeling really unsure. I kept being like, when I, you know, get to that position I want, it'll be better. And so did, did that, got the positions I wanted, got into the, you know, got moved all those steps, took the certifications, did all those things. And I still wasn't feeling the way that I wanted to. I wasn't making that impact that I thought I would have. I wasn't like feeling like I was helping people. I just kind of like felt like I was going through the motions all the time. And so I started kind of as as a person who's generally very self-motivated, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what I want to do. I started like doing health and nutrition. I hired a personal trainer. I got really fit and like was like, okay, this is going to make me feel better. And yes, I had some more energy, but I didn't really feel 
better in my job. So that was kind of what led me into listening to podcasts, reading more books and things. And this concept of life coaching kept coming up. And at that time, I was like, I have no idea what a life coach is. Never even heard it before. And it just kept coming up until I literally Googled it. And I was like, okay, so it's like basically just like teaching you how to understand your brain and take action and move forward from that. So it's very forward focused. And I'm like, okay, I like that. Googled it. There was a life coach in my area. I was like, I reached out to her, started talking to her, working with her. And through the process of like that next six months to a year of just like learning more about myself and like what I wanted, who I wanted to be in my personal life, in my professional life, it just helped me gain so much self-confidence, self-awareness, and like autonomy in my nursing practice that I like no longer felt drained and exhausted. Like I really felt like a clear sense of purpose. I kind of could like get up when my alarm went off and actually go into work feeling prepared rather than just like going through the motions. So I had that transition. And at that point I was working or I started working in the um, CVICU. So I was working with the same coworkers and they all were like, something's changed with you. Like what's going on? Like, what are you doing? Like you seem so much like more just like happy and content now. And so I started like kind of giving out free advice and people kept coming to me. And I realized that was kind of when I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is what excites me. And this is how I want to help people. So I went and got my coach certification. And that was in like 2019 into the beginning of 2020. I finished my coaching certification, like literally in February of 2020. And then March of 2020, COVID hit. And I was like, Oh God. <laughs> so kind of like jumped into the deep end with that and started doing like workshops for my coworkers at the hospital and really just giving nurses tools and resources to like, I really in my coaching practice, I want it to be, I want to make it as simple as possible. Nurses are so busy. We do not have time. So anything that I can give to help my clients and just like the people that I work with in healthcare do things that make them feel better in like as little amount of time or as simple as possible is always my goal. So I did workshops and things just giving simple tools that you can kind of already add to the habits you have to make you just like feel more of a sense of lightness in your work. So that's kind of where it started and it's just kind of grown into mostly like working with those ambitious nurses who know that they want more. They want to kind of serve in a bigger way and really just giving them the tools and resources so that they can love their practice. They can like love the clients that they're working with and sometimes that's changing their nursing roles. But a lot of the times it's actually just like shifting the job that there are. So it's not necessarily about running away from a toxic job or job hopping to find something better. It's really about giving you the tools and resources to handle whatever chaos healthcare throws at you because it has been chaos over the last few years. Yeah, that's kind of my backstory of how I got to where I am now. Well, I love that. That's great. I mean, it's it sounds like you you're very passionate about it. Definitely. And- it's it's that's what that's what it takes yes. to be good at something you know so what how do, how do you approach this like if someone came to you and said okay i'm really struggling with burnout as a nurse i went through worked through, all through covid i i don't know what to do i love nursing i don't want to leave my job i don't want to leave the bedside but i i don't i don't know what else to do i'm miserable can you help me what 
what process do you go through with them? Yeah, absolutely. Most of my clients are those nurses who love nursing. And so it really is starting to kind of figure out where you are. And I think the biggest thing is sometimes we're kind of sitting on the couch imagining what it would be like to change, but not actually doing the work to change. The clients who I see succeed and create careers that they love again and learn how to fall back in love with nursing are the ones who are like at the point where they're like, okay, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to figure this out. I, I want to love nursing. I want to feel better. I want to actually enjoy my life outside of the hospital. Those are the people that I see succeed because they're willing to take action. So I think the biggest thing is once you start getting that awareness that like, okay, I'm drained, I'm exhausted, my alarm clock goes off at 5 a.m., p.m., whatever you do, <laughs> and you just like dread getting up and going into work, like, but you know that there's something better for you. You know that you can like have something better. Like you're like, I just want to help people, but I just feel so trapped and stuck or like out of control. So that is like the person who I know can change because they have that desire to start taking action on that. So really my process is teaching you to start with, it's that awareness, teaching you about your own brain, teaching you that observation bias. I feel like we meant, I mentioned that kind of earlier with the bad nurse side. It's like people see what they want to see. If you go to the car dealership and you buy a white Honda Civic, but you've never driven a white Honda Civic before. Now you drive off the parking lot and you go down the street and you're like, oh my God, there's Honda Civics everywhere. You park at the grocery store and you're like, there's a hundred other people who have this exact same car. But before that day, you never noticed those Honda Civics because your brain wasn't trained to focus on the Honda Civics. And the same thing works in all aspects of our lives. Our brains are trained for efficiency. So your brain is not going to spend the energy looking for things that it doesn't find relevant to it. So really to start with, it's about training your brain to look for the evidence to believe what you want to believe. Looking for all the evidence that your nursing job is the right job for you, that you already have the skills, that you're already capable of figuring it out. Think about how many situations where you've had patients that you're like, I've never even heard of this diagnosis. I have no freaking clue what to do. And yet you go out, maybe you have to Google something, but you go in there, you hold that patient's hand, you tell them that you're going to figure it out, you help them through it, and you do figure it out. You do all the things you need to do and you help them through that. This is exactly the same thing that can happen in your life. You already are a strong, capable nurse. It's literally just training your brain how to apply that to other aspects. You already have the experience. And I don't think there's any experience that's quite like becoming a nurse. That first year of nursing, like if you can get if you can get through nursing school, if you can get through your first couple of years of nursing, like you are literally capable of anything. It's just applying that to other aspects. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned what's relevant and looking around and seeing what's what's relevant and how that's what we we're always only, you know, looking for for what's relevant, but you can actually train your mind to look at the things that should be relevant to you and try to put everything else out. Have you ever heard of John Verveke? So he's a, he's a philosopher. Um, he lives in Canada. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. He does a lot of research. He does a lot of teaching. He has a, a YouTube, John Verveke. It's V-E-R-V-A-K-E. 
something like that. I think I probably, that's probably not right. That is not right at all. I completely messed that up. Anyway, he talks about relevance, what he calls relevance realization. Mm. My husband and I and our son, our middle son, Joel, who's 24, we've been watching like all of his videos. He has these like 50 video series of talking about awakening from the meaning crisis. And so basically what he's, he, he, take, he takes you through, I mean, it's, it's, it's not for the, you can't, you're not going to sit there with a bowl of popcorn. You're going to have to pay attention to what he's saying. But man, by the time we get through all of those, that, that one thing, that relevance realization, it is so key. And it's something I never thought of before he said that, but that's exactly what you're talking about. It's so important. And we don't even know, like our whole, this whole world is, we're all in a meaning crisis that we need to <laughs> awaken from. And I'm whether you're religious or not, um, I am a Christian, but I, I don't try to force my beliefs on anyone else. I'm happy to, to talk about it. But, um, but um, whether you're religious or not, you can still have a meaning crisis. You know, you can have this existential, you know, problem. And that can happen in nursing, it can happen in your career. Just like, what am I here? Why did I go to school? Why did I spend all this? Why am I having to pay um, off this student loan for a career that I'm absolutely miserable doing? And it's so hard to think of, you're like, I really want to leave. I just want to leave. This is so this is making me miserable, but I can't do that. Would you say if there are, I know there are people listening to this who are going, that's me, that's me. Would you say that 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 if someone is working, and I say at the bedside because a lot of times those are the people that, you know, but there you can be miserable in, in any job. But man, does, when you're working at the bedside, you can it can really wreak havoc on your your emotional, your mental, physical, every kind of health. Would you say that if you're a nurse working in that capacity, that through the coaching, through learning how to do the things that you're talking about, that they would be able to overcome that and then kind of re-energize that what they were hoping to get for as the, you know, from nursing school? Or do you think this is a way to kind of figure out what else. Like, do you think it's possible to re-energize and want to actually stay at the bedside? Absolutely. I really do think that there is less, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, it's a toxic job. But I think that there is actually less toxic jobs than people say there are. And don't get me wrong, there's definitely toxic jobs out there. But I think a lot of it is really like what we're choosing to see, how we're choosing to show up how we are caring for ourselves. Like if we're not taking time to take care of ourselves, we really lose the capacity to choose how we show up, to choose how we respond to situations. Like your brain just goes on autopilot. And if you're emotionally and energetically depleted, it kind of just goes into that fight flight and you just react at like whatever your baseline programming is, which is generally not the pro like not how we choose to react so if you're that kind of person who like gets into a difficult situation at work and reacts in a certain way and then you're going home and you're reliving all of the ways that you wish you had showed up it's because in that moment you didn't have that energy to choose how to respond and I think 
when you learn more about your brain, how you show up, what you want for yourself, and actually start like taking action on that, setting boundaries, putting in lifestyle practices that are personal to you and give you energy. It's not about like applying somebody else's formula. It's about really helping you figure out what you want, what works for you. You almost like it's, it's very weird to explain, but I've heard so many of my clients say it the same way. It's like you create more space in your brain where you are like, okay, I see this situation happening and I actually have the space and the time to think about it and then choose how I want to respond. So yes, it, for those nurses who are in that state of just like sheer exhaustion, you can absolutely learn how to love nursing again. And I feel like in a new way, because you develop a better understanding of what you actually want. And I can speak from my personal experiences. Like I went into nursing because I wanted to help people. But when, if you were to like actually ask me what that meant and what that looked like, I wouldn't have had any idea. Like, like what, what does helping people look like? Like, what do you actually want to do? How does it, how do you actually want to help people? Like doing what particular things are you really good at and like totally gets you excited when like, is it, is it patient education? Is it like critical thinking and you have like that critical situation? Like what areas do you shine your brightest and you go at the end of the day and you're like, damn, I really accomplished something so awesome today. Like, and it's kind of helping you figure that out so that you can create more of those situations that put you in the situations where you're like, this is where I shine. And most of us have never really had the opportunity to figure that out. I mean, that's great. If you guys are listening to this and you would like to talk to Jana, Janet, tell them where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me at www.janaholterman.com. I am on Instagram and Facebook at Jana Holterman Coaching. Pretty much anywhere you can search Jana Holterman. You can Google it. I'm the only one, which makes it very convenient. So you can find me. <laughs> and so it's it's Holterman. So yes. it's like H-O-L-T-E-R-M-A-N. Correct. And Jana's with two N's. Two N's, All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yes, I really enjoyed being here. This was a lot of fun. Well, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com or on social media at goodnursebadnurse. And you can send me an email. I love hearing from you guys always at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And of course, before we go, I got to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.